yesterday had the opportunity to be with a lot of our extended family. And we went to Nancy's hometown of New Harmony, Indiana. And New Harmony is a place that if you blink, you miss it. And if you're not going there, then you'll never find it, that kind of place. You know, if you're not specifically looking for it, you're just not going to see it. It's, it is a dot, but a small one on the state road map. And, and so we went there yesterday and had the opportunity to visit with a lot of our extended family. Somebody asked me this morning, how are your kids doing? I said, well, they're, they're good because they were with all three sets of grandparents, a great-grandmother, lots of cousins and aunts and uncles and all that whole deal. And they're excited and high on sugar today. And so they, they are excited because we, we celebrated Nora's second birthday yesterday. She turns two in about a week or so. And so we were there. And, and it's interesting <clears throat> that New Harmony, and some of you may know a little bit about New Harmony. It's relatively close, a couple hours north of here. And, They were established, the town was established in the 1800s as a utopian society. And there were some people that got together and decided that they were sick and tired of the way life is just in the the general culture. And they wanted to do their own thing. And so they bought a tract of land and and decided that they were going to establish a utopian place to live. And essentially it would be socially and economically and, and all of that communal. They would live together in perfect harmony. And they would share every single thing they had, and nobody would get their feelings hurt. And if they did, things would be mended very quickly, and it would just be perfect. Their experiment lasted two years. And I joke with Nancy sometimes because I say, you know, some of these folks still think they're living in that utopian society, untouched completely by the outside world. And, you know, and I joke with her, of course, and she's from, you know, real, real small town. I'm from Louisville, and so we go back and forth. She gets on me, and I get on her and all that. But, but anyway, it's interesting that it only took two years for the true colors of humans to come out. The establishment of utopian society sounded great until somebody decided they liked their own stuff and didn't want somebody else to take it. Well, we just shared. Hold on, that's mine. And and you can imagine from there how it unraveled. And so now it's simply a historical marker, so to speak. There's a sign there in the middle of town that once upon a time, here's how our town got started. It lasted for two years, and and we're sort of reaping the benefits now. And, and it's interesting that over and over throughout history, and maybe you've been this way, that people have just thought, why can't we just get along? Why can't we just live together and, and, and sort of like one another or at least tolerate each other and sort of and just move forward in life? Why does it always have to sort of unravel into this incredibly selfish experience? And we all in some ways seek that. Some of you live in, in places where you just think, look, I've, I've finally sort of gotten myself far enough out from all that's going on to where I'm untouched. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, somebody infringes upon your protected areas, so to speak, and they're selfish. You've been there? Some people will just continue to move further and further out. Ah, we like it out here. There's no problem with that. But, but you just think, maybe if I can just get a little bit further, I'll escape all the humanness themselves. And sometimes even people have decided, like New Harmony, to establish some sort of society, put walls up around it, and say, finally, we're untouched by the world. But you know what always finds you, doesn't it? It always finds you. You can escape, but it always finds you. You can go out to the desert, but guess who's still there? You are. It always finds you. That's the way that it is. You know, and so interestingly enough that, you know, God wants that sort of experience for us. I really believe that. But I don't believe that it's found in establishing some society and putting walls up around it and moving far out from everybody to sort of be untouched by the world. In fact, 
I believe what the Bible says is that God, only God through the church, can provide the sort of experience that all of us long for, that we all want. It can provide for us the love and acceptance, forgiveness, encouragement, and the sort of life that we're looking for. What I'm not talking about, as I said, is sort of establishing some uh, community out in the middle of nowhere to where nobody can touch us and reach us, put walls up around it. We've seen how disastrous those sorts of things can be. That's not what we're going for. And so the idea today is to look at the Scripture and figure out how can we follow what the, the Bible has to say about establishing the type of place that I believe the Bible says that we ought to be. And so we're not talking about removing ourselves completely from the world, but about establishing a truly biblical church that pleases God both individually and collectively. Our goal, as we've stated through this entire series that we've been looking at, is to be unstoppable in our community, to see lost people actually want to be here, and to see lost people then come to know Jesus Christ. Those who are far from him want to be around people who know Jesus And sometimes there's a wide gap between those who are far from Jesus and those who are close to Jesus. And sometimes neither one wants to be around the other. And our goal is to create, or to allow God to create, rather, a church here that is unstoppable in reaching our lost community. And so we've seen already some of the characteristics of a biblical church and how a biblical church is full of imperfect people. Now, I mentioned this on that Sunday. If you came today and you're perfect then I would love to invite you not to come back because you are going to mess us up and you have already reached what apparently God has called you to do because the rest of us are completely imperfect, though we may not admit it. Uh, somebody's elbowing somebody now to say, see, I told you you weren't. You know, even the preacher's saying it today. But none of us are perfect, but the great thing is God receives us just the way we are. If we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to be people who follow the Bible, we have got to receive people just how they are can't ask them to clean up their act and then get involved. God doesn't ask us to do that for salvation, nor should we with other folks. So a biblical church is full of imperfect people. Not only that, but those imperfect people are ready for God to move. We can't tell God what to do. We can't schedule and say, God, look, we're going to get together at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. And, and, and that's we're going to give you that hour of the week. And if you want to do something, then we'd appreciate it if you would show up, or, you know, about that time. You'd be a couple minutes late, some of us are. And so, you know, you can get there. You need to get there early and kind of hang out. And then, God, you can shake hands with us. But listen, during that time, that's the only time we've got. How absurd is it that we operate with God sometimes that way? We say, God, look, here's what you, you ought to do. We can't schedule a move of God. We can't tell him what to do, but we can be ready for it. We can have our hearts broken and, and be ready and humble before him and say, God, look, whenever you want to show up, we're ready. Whenever you want to stir our hearts to do something, God, here we go. And so a biblical church is ready for God to move. And then as a result, it experiences legitimate growth in both existing members that we grow up to be who God wants us to be. And, and, and in the addition of new members who find Jesus for the first time. And then last week we saw the fact that a biblical church loves the Scripture. That without God's Word and, and daily interaction with it and in prayer with God, that, that we in a sense go through like blind and deaf. We have no direction. We have no way of knowing where to go. And essentially, we take ourselves off life support and will not last long apart from communication on a regular basis with God. And so we're going to look again today at the same scripture that we saw last week, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you've got your Bible, you want to turn there. Go ahead and open that up. Acts is in the New Testament right after the book of John. And we're going to look today at that same verse. And let me kind of catch you up to speed very quickly on where we are 
the story. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and most all of chapter 2 describe the beginnings of the first church as we would know it as church. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and tells the disciples, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. My very spirit is going to come and live inside of you and empower you to do things that you never thought were possible. And you're going to do some incredible things on my behalf, Jesus says. And, and so we see that. That happens in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit shows up and, and empowers and fills up those people. And they begin to speak in different languages. But the point of those languages was to communicate the gospel to people who never heard it before. And so folks gather. There's a crowd that gathers. And they wonder, what on earth is going on? Some people say, I've got to know more. Other people say, well, they're just drunk. And there's something wrong with them. And Peter, the apostle, stands up and says, look, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drinking. They have been overwhelmed by God's presence. And let me tell you what's going on. And he begins to preach this incredible sermon, laying out the terms of the gospel of Jesus. And after his sermon, 3,000 people commit their lives to Jesus Christ, placing their trust in him. And so on one day, their church grows from about 120 to 3,120 in one day after one sermon. And so as a result, they've got some decisions to make. What are we going to do? Some folks would say, well, you need some buildings. Let's, let's put up some, some temporary facilities until we can figure out, get an architect, and, and, and design this thing right. And other folks would say, well, you've got to hire some staff because, boy, you need men's ministry and women's ministry and children's ministry and outreach ministry. We've got, we got to hire that out. And if we've got now 3,120 people, well, we've got some work to do. And it's interesting that Luke... The writer of the book of Acts immediately follows verse 41 where it says 3,000 people were added to the number with what the church was going to be about. And we don't find anywhere in there staffing or buildings or anything quite like that. What we find is what they devoted and committed themselves to. I want you to look at it. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the love of the scripture. We looked at that last week to fellowship, which is what we'll talk about today, to the breaking of bread, which we'll talk about next week, and to prayers. And so we don't see any building program or anything like that, though there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, don't get me wrong, but this is what they were centered on, the love of the Scripture, then fellowship, then the breaking of bread and prayers. And so I want us to, to notice a few key words. One, one key word through Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the word all. And if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, you can fill these in. And maybe maybe that's that's what you like to do, so we provide that. But one of the key words for these two chapters is the word all. And this is a very interesting Greek word, the word all here. And it has a, a, a very surprising meaning. The word all in the Greek means all. It's incredible. It means all. That means... That this wasn't the exception to the rule. That this incredible Greek word that Luke wrote literally means all, everybody. When they were all gathered together, they were there all together. When it says that then in one translation it says they were all devoted, that means all of them. Does it make sense? We, we there? It's all. It's not the exception to the rule. You realize that the way that the church started, this was normal for them to love the Scripture. It was normal for them to be devoted to fellowship and to breaking the bread we'll see and to prayers and, and to have new people joining the church. It was normal. It was not the exception, nor was it for the super spiritual to experience God on that level. This was normal. It was for all. It was not the exception. 
It was not optional, but it was expected that this would be everybody. And so as we talk today, I want you to understand that for some of us, we may need to simply say, hmm, that includes me too. And that may be your revelation today. That I've always thought that that sort of life, that sort of experience, that sort of con- contribution to the whole is sort of, well, that's what we pay the pastor to do. Or that's what we've elected the deacons to do. Or maybe the Sunday school teachers or somebody else. Or maybe that person who's just really in touch with God. Maybe that's them. This is all. It's a key word. The second key word is devoted. They were devoted, which means they were known for it and committed to it. When Luke gives these things that they were devoted to, he says, look, when people saw these folks or when there was word about them or the rumor out there or the general consensus was this is what they were known for and committed to, to the Scripture, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, as we'll see what all that means. So they were known for these things, committed to it. Then the, the next key word there is we saw in the verse is fellowship. Fellowship. And, and, and this is the one another's in the Bible. Some of you have read enough scripture and you know there's a lot of one another's in the Bible. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Bear with one another, which means put up with one another. Literally, tolerate them. Just don't like them, just put up with them. That's what it means. And, and serve one another, love one another, forgive one another, uh, bear with one another, uh, be devoted to one another, and so on. These are the one another's. That, that word, the Greek word, now, now this is this is actually does have some meaning besides all. Oh, that was sort of a trick, just to see if you could laugh. But, and you did. Some of you are still awake. It's amazing. And so the, the word fellowship there is a, is a Greek word called koinonia, which indicates a partnering together. That there is some bond that unites us with Jesus and that unites us with other, with other Christians and other people that we partner together for some specific purpose. And, of course, we know that the purpose of the church is not for us to gather together and shake hands and say hello, but the purpose of the church is for us to come together and get equipped to go reach our community for Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the church, to be a light to our world. And so that's what we partner together on. And so it's that bond. And all of the one another scriptures all of the one another things that are said in the Bible really are summed up by Jesus and uh, something he said to his disciples just before his death and his resurrection. And, and I, I want us to, to take a look at that because he told them about a new way that they were to live out an old command. There, there was an old command that, that the disciples knew, any Jewish person knew. The old command was love one another. Very simply, love one another. In fact, the essence of the, of the last six of the Ten Commandments were based upon this, love one another. But, but if you think about it, think for just a second, if you've ever had somebody that you've worked with who does really the bare minimum, or somebody you hired and they just want to know, okay, what do I got to do to get by? That person shows up right on time, or maybe a couple minutes late, because they know you're not going to say anything. They, they do their job, but that's it. And when it's quitting time, they are out the door. You're not finding them, and you're not getting them back in the door no matter what. They do the bare minimum. And Jesus was saying, look, the old command was the bare minimum. Hey, think about the, the Ten Commandments for just a second. And we, we like to say that sometimes, well, you can kind of tell if a person is following God, and they, well, they, you know, they do the basic things. They follow the Ten Commandments. Think about it, the love one another part of the Ten Commandments. Don't kill people. Don't steal from people. Husbands and wives ought to be faithful to each other. We ought to, we ought to honor our parents. Uh, we shouldn't lie about each other. And, and, and uh, do you get how basic that is? Just simply keeping society from becoming extremely barbaric 
And we, we sometimes pride ourselves in our society. Like, well, we follow the Ten Commandments. Well, all you got to do is just not kill somebody. And all you got to do is just, you know, not cheat on your husband or wife, not steal. I and mean, I'm not trying to make light of the Ten Commandments, but understand when God laid out, he said, look, the fabric of your society is just sort of based on this kind of stuff. Jesus says the old command is to love one another. But understand that I'm here to give you a new commandment to fill this thing out. Let me tell you what all that stuff means. What's the reason why you don't kill people? The reason why you don't steal? The reason why you don't lie? Jesus fills all that out, and he helps us understand that all the one another's come down to something that he would give in the book of John, in chapter 13. And if you've got your Bible, you can look at it. If not, you'll see it on the screen. Jesus fulfills and fills out all of the stuff about the love one another when he says this, I give you a new commandment. John chapter 13, verse 34. Love one another. Well, so wait a minute. That's the old command. You're exactly right. But he says, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. He says, look, here's, here's the command. The old command was love one another. Nothing wrong with that. But let me tell you, let me take it to a different level for you. You realize Jesus always raises the bar for us. Some of us would say, well, Jesus just did away with all the Old Testament. No, no, no. He filled it out. He told us what it means, and he told us the full extent of what we ought to be doing in light of what God had said in the Old Testament. He doesn't do away with it. He raises the bar. The old command was love one another. Don't kill people. Don't steal. Don't lie. Hey, got that. But Jesus says, wait a minute. Let me tell you the new command. The new command is to love as Jesus has loved us. Love as Jesus has loved us. And this is obviously very radically different from just loving one another. And he was about to show them in the next few chapters of John the full extent of his love. And this new command, love one another as I have loved you, was to be the basis for their fellowship, their partnering together, their reason for existence And he would enable them to partner together on common ground that they really had never known before. And so it's way beyond just the bare minimum of fulfilling what the law had said. And so if we think about it, they were to love one another as he had loved them. And we are too. This command still remains today. And so what's so different about his love? If Jesus says, here's the new command, love one another as I have loved you. What's the difference in just loving one another and then loving as Jesus has loved us? I want us to look at at just some general ideas about the love of Jesus and how it's different. So if you're following along, you'll see these, and we'll roll through them quickly. What's so different about his love? His love is first. This is is crucial. His love is first. The first John chapter 4, verse 10 It says this, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sin. And then verse 19, we love because he first loved us. I have recordings of each of my three children the very first time we heard their heartbeat at the doctor. I have a a recording of each of those. and It's it's sort of a, a, a faint sort of heartbeat. You can barely hear it. And if you've ever experienced that, you, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I have a recording of each of those. It, it was before that, but I remember distinctly at that moment thinking, I love this child. It was a first kind of love. And, and in fact, think about it. Children, and, and let's, let's, let's consider this. We have a lot of kids up here today. But, but think about this from a very logical standpoint. There is nothing about children that should cause us to love them. 
They do nothing to deserve our money. In fact, in fact, children are the most, and, and I love kids, okay? So understand, they are the most selfish little people in the world. Are they not? Boy, if you're a child here, we love you. Just want you to know that. But we're all, we've all been there. They are the most. What's, what's their, their favorite word? Mine. Mine. It's mine. I have three kids. Everything is mine. They all fight over it all the time. Nora had a birthday yesterday. You know, the first thing Hank wanted to do was open Nora's presents when we got home. They're mine. No, I'm like, you know, they are the most selfish little things on the planet, but we love them anyway, don't we? They have done nothing to earn our love. They haven't loved us first, and as a result, say, oh, well, if you love me, then I'll love you. We just love them anyway. They all come down front. Sometimes they act exactly the way they're supposed to, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes in your home, I know the exception of the rules, when they don't act like they're supposed to, of course. But we love them anyway. It's a first kind of love. There's nothing lovely about us either. There's nothing lovable about humans in general, let's be honest. We are born into the world to be rejecting God and to run from Him. We are born into absolute sin and complete moral depravity. Tell me what's to love about that. Even though God has shown us His love and all, we don't return it to Him very often. But God loves us first. And there's a difference between first love and second love. Second love is reflected. My children love me. Why? Because I love them. They, they, they have no... They don't come out of the womb saying, Daddy, I love you. They, they say that in response, I love you too. And then eventually maybe they learn a little bit of what first love is about. But I, I think it's true that I'll probably always love my children more than they love me. And I realize that God loves me more than I'll ever love him. Because his love is first. His love took the initiative. His love didn't wait for me to return it. And he just loved me anyway. So the love of Jesus is first. It's different. So if we are love like him, we've got to mirror that. Secondly, his love is first and his love is for our benefits. His love is for our benefits. God doesn't love because, because it's somehow advantageous for him, as if he's needing something and said, well, if I love these people, they'll... Then maybe they'll return their, that love, and, and then I'll be fulfilled. You realize that God in and of himself is absolutely complete, not needing anything, much less the love of humans that are running from him. He does not need our love, but he loves us for our benefit. Because without his love, we are absolutely hopeless in life. And yet God loves us for our benefit. Incredible love that he has for us is difficult for us to explain. It, it's not because of anything but, but his greatness and his goodness so we can experience those things. He wants to lift us up to where he is so that we can be like him. He loves out of the concern for our welfare. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7 sort of give us the highlight that, that, that God, in, in the Bible says he is love, which means that all these things, he is patient, he is kind, he doesn't envy. He's looking out for our best interest. Think of all those things you're reading now on the screen. It's all for our benefit. And he doesn't hold our wrongs against us. Whose benefit is that for? Ours. We see the true picture of love. He cares about every detail of our lives. There's a great passage of Scripture in Matthew 6 that says that not even the sparrow falls to the ground. A bird can crash himself into a window 
and die, and God knows that he cares about stuff like that. And the Bible says if he cares about those birds, how much more does he care for us? He cares about every detail, and it's for our benefit that he loves us. Not only that, but the love of Jesus is not based upon what we deserve. It's not based upon what we deserve. Because if he based his love on what we deserved, we'd all be dead. Now, that's really encouraging today at church to find out that what we deserve is to die. But the truth is that even one sin, the Bible says, is enough for God to condemn us for all eternity, to spend apart from him in hell, and for him to crush us right then, to take the very breath out of our lungs. But God's character revealed in the Bible shows us that he does not love based upon what we deserve. He loves instead based upon who he is. He is love. He bases his love on his faithfulness, not on ours. He gives us what we do not deserve to demonstrate his love toward us. Romans 5.8 says that even in the midst of our sin, while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love and sent Jesus to die. And so his love is not based on what we deserve, so it's full of forgiveness and second chances. And he loves even those people that are hard to love. Please don't elbow anybody or look and point. That's you. He's talking about you. You're hard to love. Don't. That's not what we're going for. But do you realize that there are a few people in here that are hard to love? Let me make eye contact with everybody just so you think, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? you realize that? For some of you, sitting next to the person who's hard to love. For some of you, you sitting way across the aisle from somebody who's hard to love because you realize, I just can't love those people. And, and for some of us, you know, I may be the person that's hard for you to love. I may be younger, older than you. I may look at life different. I have no idea. I may be the person that's hard for, for you to love. You may be the person that's hard for me to love. Believe it or not, maybe that's, maybe that's the case. But you realize that God loves those people that are even hard to love because it's not based upon what we deserve. His love is also compassionate. It's compassionate. He looks at us, and he sees us needy and helpless. And as a result, his heart goes out to us. The New Testament highlights over and over how Jesus came on a crowd, and he had compassion on them. One scripture even says he looked at them, and he, and he realized they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you just get the sense of he's, he's broken for them. He cares. He's compassionate. And so Jesus met the needs of the people in his day, their physical needs, their spiritual needs, their emotional needs. That's what he was about. And his love is also persistent. It's persistent. There are a couple of scriptures. First Peter chapter 3, verse 20, you'll see it on the screen. Talks about the fact that God delayed the flood. You'll see it there. God delayed the flood so that maybe more people would get on the ark. Maybe more people would turn to him. And, and we see that God's love was persistent. He was giving them another chance to continue to pursue them. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we find out that, that God is, is not delaying. Some of us pray for the return of the Lord. And, and we say, God, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? What's going on? And, and the Bible says, wait a minute. He may not be waiting as we think he's waiting. He may just be giving people another chance. He may just be pursuing the world a little bit more. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22, we see where Peter asked Jesus, look, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? And think about it. Seven times is a lot for the same offense. Somebody does something to you three or four times, that's it. I'm done. He says seven times he's going above and beyond. Jesus says, no, no, no. Seventy times seven. But he's, look, don't stop. 
Keep pursuing those people. God is pursuing God. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save. He's going after people. God came after Adam and Eve. Think about it. After their sin in the garden, what did God do? He walked in the garden and looked for them. He pursued them. He starts calling out to them, hey, where are you? Jesus, after Peter denies him, seeks him out, sits down with him, says, look, Peter, let me tell you, things are okay. I forgive you. The problem with this kind of love is that it does not come naturally or culturally. We see that and we say, okay, yep, I see that that's God's kind of love. And I kind of see where, okay, if that's the way God is and the Bible says I'm supposed to imitate him, okay. But we have to understand this does not come naturally. I could preach a sermon every single week on self and self-centeredness and selfishness and never run out of things to say. You realize that? Not because of how bad you all are. We're just human. It's not our life completely focused on us most of the time, even though we don't want it to be, and sometimes we don't even think it is. Well, I'm taking care of me and mine and all that kind of stuff. We are born selfish and unloving. Just like we talked about our children that we love so much, we realize we're not a whole lot different than them because we are human as well. Think about it. If we look at this list and compare our love to this list, how many times is our love truly first? Or how many times do we wait for somebody to love us before we say, okay, well, I can love them. They they seem lovable. How many times is it based upon simply the benefit of another person? I love them just because they exist. Not because of what they can do for me, but because they exist. And I care for them in every detail of their lives. How many times do we love based not on what people deserve, but because, well, this person has done this, or they seem okay. How many times do we not love somebody and we say, well, they're just unlovable. I, I can't love them. What if God had said that about us? How many times is our love truly compassionate and we see people and we say, man, I wonder what's going on in their life. We all walked in here today with lots of things on our minds. Some of us have had a great week and some of us not. There were several folks who when I asked you to pray, you looked up and that's me. You have no idea what's going on in people's lives, do we? Jesus had compassion wanted to know, wanted to understand, not so he could gossip and tell everybody, but so he could pray, so he could help them. How many times is our love truly persistent that we keep going after people, even if they've fallen, even if they've failed? How many times do we continue to go after them? So we realize this is not natural. That only God's Spirit can enable us to do these things. Only God can change our hearts to make us loving like he is loving. We have to give ourselves to him in that way. And we say, well, that's great. All right, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. Let's shake hands again so I can show everybody how much I love them. And I'm going to smile this time. And I'm going to actually give a firm handshake. And I'm not going to turn away. Okay, but you know what's going to happen? We're going to leave here in just a few minutes. And you're going to go back home. And this week you may go back to work. And this week you may go back to school. You may be around certain people. And you're going to turn on the television. You're going to realize that not only is it not natural, but culture doesn't support our love according to the love Jesus has either. In fact, everything you see is going to say, take care of you. You deserve it. You've earned it. You have the right to this or that. Watch TV and just pay attention to the commercials. And you'll see that life and culture is set up to be all about self. And so we've got to choose to live a different sort of life, choose to love the way that Jesus loves. And so we've seen that after gaining this understanding of the fact that the fellowship of this early church was not based merely on getting together for a potluck dinner, though I'm excited that we do that. You realize if you are going to be 
a good Southern Baptist, and some of you say, that's me, then you, your first, you, when I said fellowship today, when you saw it in the Scripture, you think, man, are we, we're going to get together for lunch today. Man, I, all right, I came to church on the right day. Here we go, let's have a fellowship. And that's all right, you know, that's what we think. But you realize it goes much deeper than that. Much deeper than that. That may be included in it. But their fellowship, their partnering together, was based on the love that Jesus had for them. And so we sort of arrive at, all right, we've seen all that. We've seen the difference in God's love, and we've seen the command of Jesus to love as he loved. So what do we do? Now what? What we do is we leave it. It's very simple. It's not extremely profound, but it's this. Love as Jesus loves you. I, I find the Bible in the Christian life, not to be easy by any means, but to be simple. Read the Bible, do what it says. Some of you are thinking, man, you've got to be smarter than that. That's all i got. That's it. That's all i got. Read the Bible, do what it says. We read the Bible. It says, love as Jesus loves. So as a result, what do we do? Love as Jesus loves you. We cannot, the Bible is clear on this in 1 John, we cannot claim to love God. And not love other people the way he has loved us. The Bible says if we claim that kind of love, well, I love God, but you know what? I'm not so sure about these other Christians. I'm not so sure about all those other people. The Bible says that we are not of the truth. And we don't have the truth in us, which means, in a sense, we are liars. We cannot claim to love God and not love other people the way he has loved us. A biblical church understands that the mandate of Jesus is that we do this and we have to follow individuals. In that sort of church, understand that church is not about me and what I want and getting all my needs met and me, 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 and I like this, but I don't like that. A biblical church, the individuals have to understand that church is about learning to love and to serve people the way that we have been loved by Jesus. And that's what we've got to be about. And what person, think about it, what person would not want to be involved in the type of church that extends first love? And whether they've been here for 30 years and this is the first Sunday they walked in, somebody immediately goes up to them and says, hey, I'm glad you're here. Think about that for just a second. Somebody actually takes the initiative to love somebody instead of waiting and saying, well, I, I, I see those new people, but it looks like there's other folks around them, so I guess they're taken care of. What person would not want to be a part of a church that extends first love or, or, or be a part of a church where they're loved for their benefit, that somebody cares about them just because they exist? And then somebody is looking out for their own good. Somebody is protecting their reputation. Somebody is involved in the details of their lives. That around here when a sparrow falls in somebody's life, so to speak, that we understand and we know about it. Not because we have to be in the know, but because we care. Because we want to, to take care of them as best we can. What person would not want to be involved in a church where they are loved? Not based upon what they deserve, but they are forgiven when they fall. They're encouraged, they're lifted up, and they're helped out. What person would not want to be a part of a church where the compassionate love is extended, where they are seen as somebody who may have had a bad week, and we just care about them. We care about what may be going on in their lives and how we can meet their needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And what person would not want to be a part of a church where the love is persistent, where nobody falls through the cracks. Think about for just a second the people that typically sit next to you, and they're probably sitting next to you today. We're all creatures of habit. We typically gravitate back toward the same spots. I'm the same way. And so usually you have the same people sitting around you on a regular basis. Who hasn't been here in a while? Have you noticed? Have you been 
paying attention enough do you know their names that sit a couple rows in front, two seats over, maybe just a little bit behind? Do we have persistent love toward those people that when they're gone, we notice, and as a result, we don't call them and say, where have you been? We call them and say, look, we haven't forgotten about you. We just want to let you know we care, we love you. Is there anything we can pray for you about? We hope you're doing okay. We, we write them a note and say, look, hey, it's been great to have you at church. Hope things are going well. If I can help, let me know. Persistent love, going after those people. Maybe today before you leave, you just get the name and a phone number of somebody that you've been sitting next to for the last six months, and you've yet to know them. Just admit it. Say, look, I messed up. I didn't get your name. Hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so. Can, can, you know, can I help you out in any way? I, sometimes you're going to go to somebody and say, hey, have you been here a long time? Yeah, 30 years. And hey, just deal with it. That's the way it is. All right? Just deal with it, but take the initiative to be persistent. And so the question then becomes, how are we doing? How are you doing in this area? Do you love like that? Do you love as Jesus loves, or or do you just talk about it? Yeah, I I love my church. I love those people. But does it spur you on to action? Remember that the Greek word for all is all. It's not the exception. It's not just for the women, fellas, to love like this. It's not just for those... Those people that, well, they've got a tender heart. It's for all of us. They were devoted to it. This is what they were known for and committed to. And if we truly love God, then the extension of that is love for others just the way he has loved us. Maybe today you're also a person who you realize for the very first time as we lay out some of the characteristics of God's love, that you realize he's been pursuing you for a long time. And you realize that you maybe have turned from God's love and said, well, I don't think God could love me. I don't know what I've done. Each of us have sinned, the Bible says. The Bible says that God loves us in spite of that. No matter if your sins are numerous or your sins may be small, you think. The truth is that even just one sin should be enough to cause God not to love us, but he pursues us and loves us anyway. Maybe you're a person today who say, you know what, I'm tired of running. And I don't want to run from God anymore. I want to experience that love that brings forgiveness. And I want to give my life to him, and I want to do my best to live for him on a regular basis. Maybe you're that person. Part of God's measure for our church will be how we love one another. The Bible says that the world will know that we're his disciples if we love one another. And I believe that God will measure our church partly based on how we love each other. And so... Imagine, for just a second, being in the kind of church that is known for and committed to loving people the way Jesus loves us. And if we want to be an unstoppable force, a place that Jesus himself would want to attend if he showed up in Murray, Kentucky, and we have to continue to be aggressive in loving people the way that he has loved us. We've got to continue in that. We can't take a day off. We can't say somebody else is going to do it. All of us have to do it. And so love as Jesus loves you. And maybe you've got something in mind and you say, all right, I'm going to start that this week. Maybe you've received God's love today. Either way, let's leave with the mandate and the encouragement to go and love the way that Jesus has loved us first for our benefits, not based on what we deserve, but compassionate and persistent. Think about what could happen Just with the people here, if we love that way, every single time we came into contact, we continue to be aggressive toward that end.
Let's pray. When you head back, your eyes closed for just a second. We're not going to linger long. But maybe you're a person who says, you know what? I just look at my life and I, I see how God has loved me and I realize I don't turn that around toward people. And you'd be, you'd be willing to admit that to the Lord today. God, I'm, I'm, I'm falling way short of that area. God, I don't love people first. God, it's all based upon what they deserve. And if they don't deserve to be loved, then I don't love them. God, I'm not persistent toward anybody. I just sort of give up on them. Maybe you're that sort of person. Just, maybe you just need to confess that to the Lord today. I want you to take this time maybe to do that and say, God, I, I'm sorry. And Lord, I, I want you to teach me how to love because I want to be like you. Or maybe you're a person who you've been today sort of overwhelmed by the, the idea of God's love and how he loves us even in spite of our sin, our shortcomings, and how many, how many times we mess up. And maybe for the very first time you'd say, you know what, that's what I want to receive. I want to, to respond to God the way he says. Because he loves me, I need to give my life to him. He'll eliminate my sin problem. And, and as a result, I can live with him for all eternity and experience his fullness here. Maybe you need to receive that today. Or maybe you just pray that our church as a whole would continue on the path progressively loving people the way Jesus has loved us. Well, there's so many folks here that do that. Maybe you'd pray that we would all get involved in that. So if you need to respond in some way in just a moment, feel free to come down and to spend some time in prayer or to, to maybe come and take my hand and say, you know what, I need to receive the love of God. I want to give my life to Him. Whatever that may be, pray to respond in the way that God calls you. Lord, thank you for this day for showing us your word, for loving us so much. Lord, may we, by the power of your Holy Spirit, turn that love around and extend that to other people, even to unlovable people who we might think don't deserve it whatsoever. Lord, keep us always remembering that we don't deserve your love either. We thank you so much that even though what we deserve is eternal punishment, you have loved us and offered us salvation as a free gift, and we thank you for that. Jesus, we want to love like you have loved us. Help us to do that as we go home, as we go to work, as we go to school, wherever it may be. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name.